No, hey, so thank you so much for letting me uh, come up and be here, and Aaron, and um, so I was supposed to come up last night, and we've, we got a freezing rainstorm that hit, it was supposed to be after midnight, but it came in uh, about three o'clock, so a lot of our roads got closed, so this morning, I thought, well, I'll just get up way early, time change, all that, and I'll, I'll get here. I pulled out of my garage, it's got a slight slope. And I slid, I, I mean, it, and then you're just laughing, because there's nothing you can do. And I slid down my drive, across the road, into my neighbor's driveway, and I was like, well, this is going to be a fun phone call to Aaron. Uh, I'm stuck in my neighbor's driveway. Good luck today. But uh, we were able to figure it out and, and get out and get going, and so that's, that's good. So it's good to, to be here. And as, as Aaron was talking about, Inquintro is a short-term uh, mission uh, project, basically. We, we put on projects around, around the world right now. Um, the Church of the Nazarene, as Aaron's talking about what we give, what we do as a church, it's really pretty cool because in some of the other denominations, which are not necessarily wrong or, or bad, but a local church will sponsor a missionary and send them. And then if something happens to that local church or funding changes or there's a catastrophe there, then that missionary gets pulled. The way the Church of the Nazarene operates is all of the Nazarene churches globally, we pull our resources. So they call it the World Evangelism Fund. So we, when we say we've got missionaries on the field or on the ground around the world, it's actually what you do. It's what we do at our church in, in Indiana. It's what all of the Nazarene churches that are gathering today or this weekend that have gathered in the United States and Canada and around the world, it's what makes all of that happen. And it's, it's really, it's, it can be kind of confusing because it's exciting when we say our church put a missionary in Cuba and we want to celebrate that and that's good. But when we as Nazarenes say we've got missionaries, about 700 missionaries, and we are a part of that. So it, it is really cool. It is really cool. And Quintro has been around since 1966. I have not. Uh, it started long before me. And in Quintro uh, was started by a guy, a guy named Bob Bolton. And, and he was what we believe to be the first youth pastor in the Church of the Nazarene. And he was also a, he was a slasher. He was the youth pastor slash worship director or music director at the church in, in Oklahoma City. And he got this idea that in 1966, he was going to take his a youth choir from his local church and go into Mexico, and they would do choirs at night, but do help the local church in Monterey, Mexico during the day. And it was, nobody had really done that at that point. Nobody, this was the first that we were aware of denominationally that how this took place. And so Bob did it. Well, after 1966, the next summer, uh, three or four other churches in the area said, hey, Bob, you going back to Mexico? Yeah, I'm going back. I'm going to do a choir tour. Can we go with you? And so the next thing you know, it, it just kind of built and, and went. In 1996... 1996, right after NYC in Phoenix in 1995, they were going back into Monterey, but this time they were going into three or four other cities at the same time. We ended up with about 4,000 students and adults in Mexico in these four cities. And through the history of the Encuentro, they began to pop up about every four years. And then Bob came ill 
in, uh, in the early 2000s, and he took some time off. Uh, he was battling cancer, and he took some time off. Uh, in the process, he lost his wife, and really the Enquintro just kind of hibernated for about 10 years. And uh, in 2014, I get a phone call from Bob. I had been a volunteer. I had served uh, since I got out of college in 94. I'd been a volunteer. I grew up in a church of about 50. I had a youth group of two. Our youth group games, we played Blink and Checkers. That was really about the extent of our youth ministry. And so I'd never been on a mission trip. I'd never done anything like this. And Bob called me and he said, hey, I hear you should be on my on my." volunteer team. And I'm thinking, this is the worst idea ever. I've never been out of the country. I don't speak, I don't speak Spanish. I don't speak Spanglish. I just yell. I just get loud. And, and kids respond to that, but I don't think it's going to work in Mexico. And uh, he said, no, I, I want you to volunteer. So for the next 20 plus years, I volunteered with Bob. But in 2014, he calls me and he says, hey, I, I'm 80. And um, I'm remarried. And I said, well, congratulations, Bob. And he said, I want you to help me. I'm going to do it one more time before I die. And I need you to be my right hand. And I'm like, Bob, I, you know, since we've been together, I've done countless mission trips. I'm all in. But do you really want to take this back on? And he said, yeah, I do. And, and he goes, I just got to do it. I, I got to do it before I die. I said, well, Bob, okay, I'll help you. So in 2014, we began planning. And then in 2016, we really kind of fired the Encuentro back up. And we went to Puerto Rico was our first site. And we were in Puerto Rico for over two weeks. We had roughly about 2,500 students and adults were a part of our, our two weeks. Now, I tell you all that because Bob had asked me over the two years of our planning, he said, hey, here's what I want from you. He said, you're going to be the right hand. You're going to oversee it. I'm going to be in the shadows. He said, I need you to run point. And I said, I get that. And he goes, and if anything ever, ha- if something happens to me, you're the guy. And I said, I'm with you. I'll help you. But I don't want to be the guy when this is over. And he said, understood. Now, Bob, you got to understand, Bob, Bob is a great Nazarene elder. You can't trust those guys. You just, no matter what, what they tell you, they, they've got a plan. I mean, he's got a plan. And so, so Bob had this, this plan. So I said, when, when we finish up our two weeks in Puerto Rico, when we finish up our two weeks in Puerto Rico, give my wife and I a little bit of time. That way we can talk about, we can evaluate it, and we'll get back together and we'll talk about the future. And he said, no problem. Well, the last night of the last event, we always do these big citywide services, and everywhere we have volunteered the last couple of weeks, they all come in, and we do this service. And it, it's really kind of the high point of what happens. It, it's, it's just an amazing night. Last thing, it's, the altars have been filled. People have given their lives, and, and the service is really over. And they bring Bob up to do an announcement, and basically give some house cleaning details about how we exit this park and, and your, bus, your bus information to get to the airport, all of those things. And Bob gets up, and my part as the leader for the last two weeks is now over. I'm, I'm, I am literally eating ice cream with three friends. 
off to the side of the stage going, this is wonderful. It's over. And Bob gets up and he goes, hey, I just need to let everybody know. And there's literally 2,500 plus the Puerto Ricans that had joined us, probably about 3,500 people. We were live streaming before live streaming was a big thing. And Bob stands up and he goes, hey, as any of you know, this is my last encuentro. I am now in my mid-80s. I just want you to, to be aware that Sean Evans is accepted to be the new director for Encuentro. Sean, come on up. And my wife is at the very end of the back of the park, and she's going, this is all I see when I'm on stage. I'm, I, you know, what do you say? And so, uh, yeah, we're locked in, so that's where we're at. So here's some of the cool things, though. 40% of those 700 missionaries that we have serving around the globe, 40% of them received their call to missions on an Encuentro trip since 1966. 25% of all work and witness insurance policies that are written are written for an Encuentro trip. It's nothing we've done. We've just kind of stepped in it. And it's just been one of the really cool things of my life. And I, I can tell you stats and the partnerships and how all of it works. This summer, uh, the Church of the Nazarene told us a year ago, due to COVID and the pandemic, they didn't really, they're not allowing mission trips outside of the U.S. Puerto Rico being a territory, even though it, in the terms of the church, it's considered outside, I mean, it's a foreign country, it is actually, they, they allow us to do it because it is a territory of the U.S., this summer we'll be in Appalachia and Eastern Kentucky and West Virginia and we'll be in Puerto Rico where y'all will be serving with us. Our main focus, we have, we've got four main focuses, is construction, VBS, medical clinic, clinics, and sports camps. One of the things is it's not a youth event, it's an intergenerational as we come together. But I will tell you, in 2016, it was a defining spiritual moment for me. Even though Bob had made our announcement that we were in, it was after that, uh, I had actually taken a sabbatical that summer from uh, Valparaiso Nazarene Church, and uh, they had allowed me to take a few weeks off to, to, to just kind of rest and recoup, so we went and ran a mission trip for you know, 3,000 people. So as we, as we got done in Puerto Rico, and, and I, I didn't know what I was going to do. I knew Bob had made the announcement, but I, I wasn't sold, and I knew that I could get out of it. But my wife and I went to the beach. Our, our favorite place is Gulf Shores, Alabama, and that's, that's, that's close to our heart. We love it, and we've been going there since we were in middle school. And so my wife and I, we get there, and we spend, we spend the next 10 days on the beach. And when we go, it's, it's, it's more about reading the books and putting our feet in the sand and, and watching the waves and hopefully see a dolphin or two. But it was in the midst of the reading and the sitting side by side and kind of talking about what are we going to do and, and where we were at, where I was at in my age. Uh, I turned 50 uh, this past November, so I know that in terms of career that I was on this other, I was closing in on like the last third of the working life or maybe as we head into retirement. So we talked about all those things. We talked about what retirement would look like, what we would do, where we would go, what we would want to, you know, what do we want to do at VNC? What do we want to do with our lives? And so that, that silly announcement that Bob made, that goofy announcement that was way out of lines for him, 
ended up being this, this discussion starter for us that just began to change things. As we sat there on that beach, and I, you know, I gotta be honest, just being honest with you, for those of you watching with us online, I was starting to get a little aggravated because Bob was making me think about things I wasn't really ready to think about yet. I don't know if that's ever happened to you, where somebody kind of flippantly does something, and the next thing you know, you're so engaged, and now you're like, dadgummit, why did you say that to me? Why did you challenge me? Why did you push that? Why, why are you saying it with that tone? Or why are you using the words that you're using? And it gets kind of aggravating. Well, that's where I was at. I was in my happiest place on earth, the, my, my absolute favorite location on the planet, doing what I absolutely love to do, and I'm ticked off. And I'd read a little bit, and then I'd throw the book in the sand, and I'd just stare. Then I'd go get in the water, and I'd come back, and I'd sit down. And this is what those 10, 11 days ended up becoming because it became a battle. And I still carry the list on my phone. I took my phone out and I made this list that I keep. that I have to go back and remind myself of a few things. And it was about Enquintro and about our life. And it started kind of making this pros and cons list. You ever do that? But then I got to this one line that I haven't been able to shake. And it was, as we sat on the beach and did what we love to do, it began to talk about legacy over livelihood. And and we felt like we could probably stay at our church and be as content as we could be, as happy as we could possibly be, and we would be okay. And there would come a point where we could retire and drift off and maybe even spend more time with our feet in the sand. But what we started really getting challenged on was, were we going to do something that was more legacy-minded, or am I just here to get the livelihood, to, to pay the mortgage, to pay off a car, to work 48, 49 weeks a year and take a few weeks off, and then at some point maybe retire, and if we're all lucky, die in our sleep happy. And so I began to really get challenged by that. And it became this defining moment for me that I look back to today. If anybody asks me in my ministry in Valparaiso, I tell them it was the summer of 2016 that changed everything. It was the summer of 2016 that really began to change and shape the way my ministry at my local church and globally began to happen. Sydney Evans, she wrote in Forbes magazine, she goes, a defining moment is a point in your life where you're urged to make a pivotal decision or when you experience something that fundamentally changes you. Not only do these moments define us, but they have a transformative effect on your uh, perceptions and behaviors. Now, so we can go back and we can look at these defining moments of of history for us, but what, what about in your spiritual life? Just wherever you're at today, if you're online with us or you're in the room Just pause for a second and take an inventory. I'm sure that if you look in your professional career, you can say it was this moment, it was this task, it was this job, it was this moment, it was this inheritance, whatever it may be that changed your life fiscally or your job career patterns shaped, twisted, turned, whatever. 
But what about if you took an inventory of your spiritual life? Is there a moment in time in your life, your spiritual life, not the other, where something turned for you? Where you said that was the moment, maybe, maybe as you can look back and you can remember the time that you gave your heart to the Lord, or, or the time you said, hey, I'm, I'm all in. I'm, I'm not just, Lord, I don't want you just to be a, a resident of my heart. I want you to be the president of my heart. You, you, you lead and I'll follow, not I follow and you lead. You know, that type of thing. See, I don't believe spiritual moments can be self-generated. The Holy Spirit cannot be manipulated. It's not another New Year's, a New Year uh, Eve resolution or a New Year's Day resolution. These happen in the very presence of God. And you know this. You can't wake up one day and decide to just be better. You're never going to be good enough just by effort. I mean, there's some disciplines that can help us and and we know that there are some songs we can sing, we can read, and we may be able to move the needle a little bit in our spiritual life, but we can't do it on our own. And I believe the Lord begins to work in very still, small voices. I've never noticed the Holy Spirit in my life and in the life of others to be a yeller. It's actually in the whispers. It's when you're in your happiest place on earth, and you're not very happy. It's when you got your feet in the sand and all you really want to do is accomplish this book and go play in the ocean and see some ocean, uh, see some dolphins or, or see some stingrays or, or whatever it is and God's got you all rattled up because this crazy old man is changing your life. See, the Holy Spirit has no regard for, for us and our earthly clock. He doesn't. He doesn't. He just doesn't respond well to let me get settled, let me get established, let me get ready. I'm too young or I'm too old. I just can't or I don't want to anymore. Or just let me be. See, these are the phrases I think we use. But here's what I've come to find out is that the Holy Spirit will absolutely... If we live in cooperation with him, he will absolutely wreck your career. He will wreck your plans. He will (laughs) wreck your retirement, your security, your savings, and your schedule. He wrecks them. Erwin McManus said this, The most important times rarely come at a convenient time. Sometimes you wish God would check your calendar first. The ironic part is that our schedules get packed with the mundane and the ordinary and we become irritated with God when he interrupts us with the miraculous and the extraordinary. And the Bible's full of stories about people who were rudely interrupted by God. Rudely interrupted. And we read about them and and we, we, we long to have that adventure. We all talk about, I want my life to be more. I want this adventure. And then when the Holy Spirit begins to whisper into us, here's how I'm going to change your life. We're like, time out. I don't, I don't have time for that. But we all want, I mean, nobody, when they were five, said, I can't wait to work behind a desk the rest of my days. No, you were superheroes. Your stick was a gun, a sword, a spear. It was what changed the world. You could fly. You could hold your breath underwater and breathe. You could do all these things. 
And then something happens and we get told that we got to live a certain way. And we try to fit in that mold. And then we pack it full of activities and stuff because we do our very best to get a little bit of sense of a feeling. And then the Holy Spirit begins to whisper into our ears, here is a way we're going to challenge. We're going to give you the adventure you long for, the, the adventure you dreamed about when you were five, the adventure you dreamed about when you were seven and eight, when a guidance counselor somewhere in some school told you that's not really a job. And you chose to go do something else. But we long to have that type of adventure and experience. And yet, when God interrupts us, is a defining moment in your spiritual life, one, when you're ready to respond in a moment's notice. Are you willing to allow God to move in the little decisions of your life? To respond in a way that says, whatever you want, whenever you want, however you want, I'll go, I'll do. There's a story in the Old Testament, and I'll... I'll I'll move quickly for you. I didn't realize, man, I, people, when you get paid to talk, you just use all the words you can find. But in the Old Testament, there's a story of Jonathan the armor bearer. And, and, and I'll tell you some of the history to make it point. But the one that gets me is the armor bearer. That's, that's the one that makes me go, that is so cool. And I don't know if you've read much of this story, but in, it's, it's, it's tucked away in 1 Samuel. But the, the whole history of Israel kind of lines up. You know, they were led by the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they end up as slaves, and Moses comes and leads them out. And the people, you know, they have the judges that are helping the Israelites. And they start going, you know, all the other nations have a king. We need a king. And they, the, the Israelites had the whininess down. And we just need a king. All the other nations have a king. Why don't we have a king? And God kind of relents and allows them to have a king, and he sends his prophet Samuel to talk to him. And he chooses Saul, who was a military man, to be the first king of Israel. And Israel has an army of 300,000 plus. And they are in constant battle with the Philistines. And you know that if you know the story of David and Goliath, which is coming shortly, but that's, that's where they're at. And they're battling the, the Philistines. And Samuel the prophet has given Saul a clear directive, a clear order of what he's to do. It's found in, in uh, Samuel 10.8, and it's, it's just telling the new king what he's supposed to do. 1 Samuel 10.8, it'll be up on the screens. Go down ahead of me to Gilgal. I will surely come down to you to sacrifice burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, but you must wait seven days until I come to you and tell you what you are to do. Pretty simple directive. This is where you go. And then you can read the next three chapters if you go home today. You can read all that. But basically, he's saying, you've got 300,000 people. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to this city. I want you to wait. And when I get there, I'm going to tell you what to do. The armies will gather. The victory was basically secured. He had a vast army, adequate supplies, sufficient weapons. As long as Saul, as long as Saul the king followed the order. In, verse thir in chapter 13, the second half of verse 7, this is what happens, and, and we'll skip way ahead. Saul re uh, remained at Gilgal, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. They were getting scared. 
He waited seven, di- uh, seven days, a time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, bring me the burnt offerings and the fellowship offerings. And so, so uh, uh, Saul's starting to kind of panic. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. Just as he had finished making the offering, Samuel arrives. And Saul went out to greet him. That's what we do. When, when we've done something wrong, we go out there and we go, hey, what's up? And so that's what happens. Samuel says, what have you done? Saul says, when I, when I saw that the men were scattering and they did not come to, to set time, they, the Philistines were assemblished and Micmash, and I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I, I haven't sought the Lord's favor, so I, I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. You have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, if you had he would establish your kingdom over Israel for all time, but now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Then Samuel left Gilgal and went up to Gibeah and Benjamin. And Saul counted the men that were with him. They numbered about 600. So all of a sudden, we go from a vast army of 300,000 down to 600. Saul was not patient. He didn't follow the orders. And it was out of his fear of death not out of worship to the Almighty. His army shrinks to 600. Victory would all, had already been guaranteed. Victory was already guaranteed to him. So why did he panic? Why were the soldiers quaking in fear? I mean, throughout Israel's history, throughout their whole history, God had a history of showing up with crazy military strategies. That's just what God does. He takes the ordinary and he goes, here's what I want you to do. And it makes zero sense to us, so we panic. Now, before we throw rocks at Saul and the whole nation of Israel, I've done that in my life, and I would be willing to bet you a biscuit you've done that in your life. I bet if if we were talking about these spiritually defining moments in our life, I bet there's a moment in time you can look back and you'd go, you know, I've really felt led to go do this one thing, and I just didn't do it. Because it didn't make time sense, it didn't make math sense financially. I was too embarrassed to bring it up. What would everybody else say? How would everybody else feel? What would my spouse think of this? What would my kids think of this? What would my job, I would have to maybe quit my job. So before we throw rocks, that's where it is. I mean, in, in Israel's history, Gideon fought with a very small army and no weapons. He told Joshua to go out and take his army and march around Jericho for a little while. So being patient, being patient and obedient was not new. And I mean, and the Philistines were ready. The Philistines hated the Israelites. In, 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 ver, in chapter 13, they, you, if you read all of that, it's 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, soldiers. This is what it says in Scripture. Soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. So fear was not shocking because the Israelites were used to running. That's not surprising either. And what else is not surprising is God usually shows up in a huge way. But verse 22 kind of catches us off guard. So on the day of battle, not a soldier with Saul and Jonathan had a sword or spear in his hand. Only Saul and his son Jonathan had them. 
The Philistines, if you read all of that chapter, the Philistines had captured the blacksmith, taken him hostage. And there was no one, these raiding parties were going around and taking the blacksmith in the Israelites' camps, and they had no way to make weapons. So they had this little army from 300,000 plus down to 600, and out of the 600, there are two swords. Two swords. The new king and his son. Disobedience, fear, control issues, they're wrecking Saul. He didn't listen, he didn't obey. So instead of allowing God to work in the middle of the chaos, he thought he knew best. Chapter 14 says this, One day Jonathan, son of Saul, said to his young armor bearer, this is the part I love, Come, let us go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gabai under a pomegranate tree in Migran. With him were about 600 men. So the army is with Saul hiding out underneath a fruit tree. And his son Jonathan tells the armor bearer, come with me. So, in the, in, so Saul, in the middle of the fear and anxiety, he chose comfort. In the middle of a pretty tense situation, he said, this seems like a good time to take a nap and get in the shade. The desert's hot. i got to save myself. It's going to take the Philistines a long time to kill these 600 without swords, so i gotta, I got to rest up. But Jonathan basically says to the armor bearer, let's, let's go pick a fight. Let's go do something. It was time for the army to act like the army. I think Jonathan had probably been sitting there looking around going, you know, Samuel already said this victory was ours. Let's, let's do something. And no matter how it looked on paper, he didn't choose the shade or comfort. He acted. Chapter 14, verse 6. says, Jonathan said to the young armor bearer, Come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised men, and perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Do all that you have in mind, his armor bearer said. Go ahead, and I am with you heart and soul. Now, Saul was impatient out of fear, and we talked about that. But Jonathan acts out of the promise and the trust. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Jonathan believed. See, he also understood that God didn't necessarily need an army to defeat the Philistines. But what would happen if a few of us were just obedient? See, God chooses to work with us. He doesn't necessarily need us, but he chooses to work with us and through us. And Jonathan's going, Lord, I, I believe the victory's, you, you've already said it's yours. It is your will for this to happen. So I'm going to be obedient. If we win, we win. And if I lose, I lose. But I, I'm going to be obedient for you. And so they make a critical decision. That we'd rather go down fighting for God. No whining, no why me, no, no, no argument of, Lord, I think this is a great idea, but two swords? Really? There couldn't have been four? There couldn't have been 400? You know, we, we went with two? No blaming his dad? No, no, you know, Saul really screwed this up? No anger at God for the situation? No doubting the calling? Just complete devotion and faith. And Samuel had already shared earlier if Israel returned to God with all their hearts, he would deliver them from the Philistines. And I think Jonathan heard Samuel say this, and he's like, all right, let's go get them. 
Let's go tackle this. And the armor bearer for me is the kicker. We don't even know his name. We don't know his name. He was definitely not royalty. He would have been named. Probably not a landowner. More than likely, he was a slave. He was some type of servant. But whatever he was, whatever title he had or didn't have, his whole deal was he was completely devoted to whatever Jonathan said. And he had a complete faith in the creator. And if you're the armor bearer to the prince, and the, and the prince is carrying the one of the two swords of the whole entire army, and the prince says to you, let's go pick a fight, and the response is, go ahead, I'm with your heart and soul, I mean, that's like movie-esque. That's like, that's like right out of 1980s action movies. I'll be back. I mean, it, it's, 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 it's uh, go ahead, make my day, go for it, whatever you want to use. It is the armor bearer saying, let's make this happen. Let's go. And so they begin. It's every tough guy line ever rolled out. So if you read the rest of, of chapter 14, there's all this, but Jonathan begins to climb up. There's this whole experience with calling out to the Philistines. And basically the armor bearer goes behind him and they make their way up the ravine and they start this fight. And in the first attack, Jonathan the armor bearer actually killed 20 men. It's in an area of about a half an acre. And what it says is the armor bearer was behind him, killing behind Jonathan. That Jonathan was fighting with the sword, that means the armor bearer was attacking with whatever he could find. Rocks, sticks, I don't know. It doesn't give great detail, but this unnamed, undervalued, no heritage, no support, run of the litter, outcast who was stuck being the armor bearer, chose courage over fear in the battle. He chose the challenge over the comfort in the battle. And he chose trust over control in the battle. So what, what I'm kind of wondering is are there spiritual defining moments in your life where you really wanted a sword and God said, pick up the rock. Break that stick off. Just go forward. Do something. Because I got to be honest. Even before the pandemic and before COVID, the believers of the church in the United States, we tend to live more out of fear than faith. And this has nothing to do with the pandemic. This has everything to do with where we are spiritually because we don't want to shake the norm of our life too much. The Holy Spirit is not a yeller. He's not going to do that. He's a whisperer. But what I have found in my life is the more that I defy the whisper, the harder it is for me to hear the whisper so I can be really faithful Maybe even a good believer. I could say I'm a follower of Jesus. Sometimes I can be a worthless Christian. Because I want to do it my way. I get stuck in my pattern and my, my travel and my life and my schedule, 
my finances and it doesn't work out for me up here, if I can't solve it here, then there's no way that's what God wants me to do. But all through Scripture, we get story after story after story after story where it doesn't make sense. You're going to take on a Philistine army of 300,000 plus. I need, you got two swords. That sounds about right. Go get it. It just doesn't make sense. See, I don't think there's going to be these huge dramatic crossroads in your life that were these big dramatic moments. Paul Tripp says this, you and I don't live in a series of big dramatic moments. We don't careen from big decision to big decision. We all live in an endless series of little moments. The character of a life isn't set in 10 big moments. The character of life is set in 10,000 little moments of everyday life. It's the themes of struggle that emerge from those little moments that reveal what's really going on in our hearts. So instead of me screaming out at you and saying, hey, you got to decide today, this is your defining moment, I don't think that happens. Here's what I'm going to say to you today. A decision has to be made that I'm going to take the next right step, whatever that is. That if we live our life according to that very basis, that Father, whatever you want from me, Holy Spirit, whatever you want to begin to shape in me, mold in me, and take me, and stretch me, that these next moments, whatever those moments may be in my life, if I've got one day or I've got 10,000 days left, whatever that day is, that these moments, I'm going to make them for you. It's those little itty-bitty decisions that seem insignificant. But if we don't make it today, it's going to be harder and harder to make it tomorrow. It just gets more complex. It gets more difficult. That we choose courage over fear, challenge over comfort, and trust over control. So when you are a part of the church, and we're doing this in this missions and this world, it is us that are trusting. But I think there's some people that there's decisions they have to make that will greatly impact not just the world, but their local community. So I, I want to pray with you. I, I, and then I think there's one more song. And I just want to pray with you, not that this is a salvation call, but as much as decisions. That I'm making a commitment to make the next right decision. Whatever is prompted of me. If it's a gift financially, if it's a gift of time, if it's a gift of resources, if it's a gift of you stepping out into the unknown versus the known. So let me just pray with you. Father God, thank you so much for the day you've given us, this opportunity we have to be in your presence, to spend time with your people. And Father, I just pray wholeheartedly that you give us a courage to live the life you've called us to live. You give us the courage to take the next right step. And Father, I just thank you for this incredible church. That they live their lives out loud in front of all. And we ask these things in your most precious and holy name. And everybody said...